Hello, everybody. This is the Eclipse Viewer celebrating our 50th episode by recording part two of a three-part series on the documentaries of Louis Mao. <laughs> Special day. That's right. Yeah, big big occasion here. We uh, we are here to uh, kind of uh, mark our golden episode by uh, taking a, a passage to India. We are here to uh, talk about Louis Mao's epic journey, kind of a personally transforming uh, event in his life. I think you could even make the case that it changed him as a filmmaker and kind of opened up some new vistas. And uh, here to talk about what he discovered there and what we discovered in our kind of peering over his shoulder as he made this uh, long trek through the vast subcontinent of India are my usual co-host, Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Good morning, David. And David Blakesley is my name. And, of course, we're joined by Mr. Keith Enright, uh, who accompanied us for our last journey uh, with Louis Mal through a couple of factories and, and bike races uh, in France. And, uh, Keith, how are you doing today? Very good. Good morning. Uh, happy Saturday morning once again. This is... Uh, yes. Yes. I'm, I'm pleased to be part of the golden episode. Kind of cool. Yeah, it's excellent. It's it's very good to have you with us. You've been uh, kind of one of my longest uh, term criterion buddies, uh, you know, fellow travelers. And, uh, of course, we've done a lot over the years in terms of blogging, podcasting, communicating uh, online, offline, and all of that. So welcome aboard as uh, we celebrate the big number 50 here on the Eclipse Viewer. I used to be one of the quieter members of the community, but no more. I'll let people you decide what voice. that means, yes. <laughs> a quieter member has spoken up and uh, Won't has changed up. the Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Changed the face of Criterion fandom forever. So well guys, uh yeah, so we're here uh picking up on uh part two of this three part series, the documentaries of Louis Mal. Like I said, we did the French series uh of films, the three films. Uh the one I forgot to mention, Place de République, was just basically Louis Mal and his crew on a Street corner in Paris uh, for about a week or two, just talking to passers-by and striking up conversations and catching it on film. Uh, those two films, uh, Place de République and uh, Humaine, Trop Humaine, uh, the, the factory set one, were actually filmed after the movies that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, a little bit of non-sequential order here, but it makes sense the way that the Eclipse series uh, divided up this set. We've got one disc of French films, we've got two discs of films from India, and then uh, two separate discs of films that Mal made later in his career set in the United States, which we will talk about next time in episode 51. But today our focus is on India, and uh, specifically India back in 1968. Louis Mal, who had already uh, kind of achieved some significant success as a filmmaker uh, in France and uh, kind of in the European art house scene, generally speaking, uh, had an invitation to come to India to do kind of a, a, a film festival of sorts. I guess he was showing off some of the uh, French films that were being exported and uh, probably viewed by some of the more, uh, you know, literate members of the intel Indian intelligentsia, uh, those folks uh, like Satyajit Ray, who we've spoken about on this series and elsewhere, and as a, you know, valued contributor to the Criterion Library, a great filmmaker in his own right, and uh, he he and Mal met during this uh, this time uh, of Mal's uh, experience in India. He was there originally just for a couple of weeks, just to 
kind of do this little promotional tour, but was so fascinated by what he saw that he connived to uh, get himself a return trip uh, with a film crew in tow. And uh, they spent several months just drawing in this incredible assortment of, of scenes and moments and you know, some of it spectacular, some of it depressingly mundane, some of it just kind of mind-boggling in any number of respects. And uh, out of those 30-some hours of footage that I guess he captured altogether, he cobbled together uh, seven hours, seven and a half hours of, of released film. Uh, seven episodes that make up Phantom India that were originally broadcast on TV in 1969. And then footage uh, that was titled Calcutta, or at least that same year, in kind of a theatrical presentation, about a 90-minute or so film, kind of in the more, you know, at that time, more conventional sense of a documentary film. Well, watching them all today, you know, in our DVDs, uh, in our nice home theater setups, I don't see a big distinction between Phantom India and Calcutta other than it's just kind of, you know, separate episodes, each with their own little theme. But we're here to just kind of react to this big sprawling mess <laughs> of like seven and a half hours of, of uh, you know, well-edited, well-shot footage. But, man, it is uh, close to incomprehensible in terms of giving a, a succinct verbal summary. So our, our plan today, dear listener, is just to kind of respond and react and interact with each other about what we saw and what we've all been through as we've... I, I suspect each of us, rec- you know, recently in the last week or so, have been kind of uh, binging on this, uh, you know, incredible and occasionally outrageous uh, film presentation that Mal and crew have put together. So, Trevor, I'll give you the first shot at it. What do you have to say about this? Uh, just kind of as an opening comment, and then we'll kick it over to Keith. Oh, this was spectacular. I will tell listeners it's easy to binge on um, the Phantom India episodes. There are seven of them. It looks, it looks intimidating. You've got, you know, six hours of, of a documentary there, but each one's only 52 minutes or so, and they move very nicely. Um, even though Mal will often settle in and watch something for quite a while, um, for example, some dancers in one of the in one of the films. It, you don't really want him to move on. You know, there may be some parts that go a little bit long. Um, you know, there's a, a scene with um, uh, uh, some buzzards eating a cow, and that that goes on for a surprisingly a large amount of time. <laughs> in I think one of the first uh, one or two episodes. Um, but for the most part, this is easy to watch. They're they're kind of quick bites of of different things, and because Maul. It kind of acknowledges that he himself has no thesis statement, um, and I'm not sure if that's a hundred percent true. But you know, he didn't go into it with any preconceived notion as to what he was going to film. There's quite a bit of just um, spontaneous energy that uh, that works through the films, and I don't, I really enjoyed them. I, I agree with you that they they you know we watched them all um, fairly quick together. And they can kind of blend together in that I'm not sure some of the scenes which film they occurred in, which which segment, um, but I don't think that really matters um, for our purposes today or for even my purposes in viewing them. Um, it was very enjoyable. 
I will say that I, I think that they deserve some criticism, and we'll probably get into that. Um, but I think it would be impossible to to make these kinds of films as a, a foreigner going into a land where that he really didn't know anything about it beforehand, and just making a documentary. You know, there's there's no way someone's going to do that and ever. Um, satisfy every single person who thinks that there's a certain thing you need to get from that experience or a certain thing you need to convey um, or that it's impossible for a foreigner to convey it. But really, I think Maul is even aware of that and consequently avoids some of that, the more acute um, criticism. Um, I was I was impressed with his uh, his style and with his just general um, desire just to see, just to see what's going on. Um, he does uh, overlay some commentary, which we'll get into as well. But for the most part, I think he really is just saying, hey, here, here's this thing I, I experienced. Let me see if I can help you experience it as well. And I loved it. How about you, Keith? Yeah, the the same. Uh, you know, when you're watching a film with the intent to either write about it or podcast about it, obviously you're you're watching it. You try not to, at least the first time through, but you're watching it differently than if you're just enjoying a film. And I almost broke out into a cold sweat a couple of times because I'm going through these episodes. <laughs> I'm going through these episodes, <laughs> saying to myself. This is really incredible to experience in an immediate way, but how in the hell am I going to go back and and talk about these in any sort of uh, chronological or logical way? So, of course, I'm glad that you uh, threw any pretense of that out the window with your introduction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I felt the same kind of intimidation almost. Yeah, and, yeah. you know... And well, I, I don't know if I have a lot to say just from an introductory standpoint. I have plenty to say when we get into you know our discussion or our our back and forth on this. Um, I have since we started this set have decided that uh, Humane Trop Humane is one of my favorite films of all time, and it's interesting that it came after this because um, when compared to that is another. Uh, Louis Mall project that is similar in some ways. I actually think that this uh, pales in comparison. Um, you know, but just you know, if you're looking at seven and a half hours of imagery, I mean, it's just an, an amazing, amazing experience. And you know, thinking about it from the time that it was made, um, you know, 1968. I think his last day of filming was May 1st, which was, of course, the big the big day in Paris and, 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 uh, Czechoslovakia yeah, a, and all of that. That's a great observation. Yeah. I mean, he really was kind of absent for all of that. Right. You know, he's like the hippie who skipped Woodstock to exactly. go do something else. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, oh, uh, you know, you think about it. I mean, th there is complaints of obviously from the, from the government that he's showing so much poverty and all of that. But, um, you know, India, I don't know if it was, you know, at the same time as this film, but certainly uh, in the same period of zeitgeist. I mean, India was a huge um, popular culture aspect right around that time. What with uh, Nehru Jackets and the Beatles going to India and all of that. So this certainly shows uh, a, a huge counterpoint to that. 
Um, well, well, yeah, it, it, yeah, goes, it goes. Go, go ahead. It goes deeper into India. It's not just you know Ravi Shankar grooving out on the sitar right, or right. some little exotic little seasoning that we throw into the latest pop sensation hits or fashions. This is like, well, let's let's really go check it out. Even the Beatles, who I guess they were there, what in in early '68, yeah. maybe just a you know month or two before Mal arrived. They're kind of at the Maharishi's retreat, this of kind course. of secluded little ashram uh, with all the beautiful people that uh, John Lennon went on to sing about. And then they all came back with their individual reactions. But you're right. India was at the very pinnacle of the hip, insider, trendy thing to do. And, and Mal even meets a few of these seekers who you know, also joined him on this uh, you know, pretty earnest quest to find... Uh, to find themselves, to find enlightenment, to uh, to attain uh, nirvana or whatever. Yeah, it's a uh, incredibly good timing. I've got a couple instances of this playing on different computers around me, and I'm looking at the two European teenagers, I guess, who came looking for that stereotypical enlightenment and and the the shedding of uh, material goods and all of that and. That is, of course, one of the more poignant scenes of the film where, you know, they have all of these uh, ideals based in uh, their hippiedom and their in their uh, perception of a t- Indian uh, mysticism and all of that. And, of course, a few minutes later in the film, you'll see that uh, once one of them got sick, all of that went out the door and they were looking for a quote-unquote real hospital and a ticket home for mommy and daddy so <laughs> i got a tummy hey. yeah exactly <laughs> well, you're bumming my vibe man <laughs> i have a quick question uh kind Go of ahead. along these lines if you guys don't mind i i hope i'm not interrupting a train of thought keith am no, I? no I, let's I, just roll I, with it Here i had none yeah. all right so, so my question is, even though Maul is showing that kind of ignorance and that kind of naivete of, hey, you go to India for enlightenment and, and this beautiful experience and because, you know, they have it, they, they know they, they're, they've stripped away some of, the, some of the junk that we have in Western society. And Maul is, is kind of, um, you know, aware of that and making fun of it. And yet at the same time, seems to be a little bit of a part of it himself only through a different lens i mean he does showcase a lot of poverty and he does showcase it as oftentimes something um that's that's bad while other times throughout the set he's obviously showing it as something pure he seems to be taken in by the simplicity of their life and sometimes i can't remember any specific lines but just seems to fall into that trap that of ennobling poverty because they don't have the same you know material quest that we have in the west and so it's an interesting um complex uh, perspective there where he seems to be aware of it to some degree and making fun of it to some degree he doesn't appreciate those who come over and and kind of want to go to like a, you know get basically spa treatment for a little while um and just live off of buddhism at least their brand of buddhism or not sorry not not buddhism of um uh, hinduism, hinduism um and live off of that brand of hinduism until it's not convenient but he does also have a little bit of a of I think some of the same symptoms when he's looking at poverty, um, which I understand. You know, I understand the criticism of those who watch it and say, "Hey, 
you know, I think a lot of them are saying, don't show all the all the warts. Um, whereas I think a lot of other theorists might look at this and say, hey, don't try to make this out to be something beautiful. And I'm just kind of curious because yeah. I didn't have a good way of reconciling all that. And there probably isn't a way. I think that we all are complex individuals and, you know, criticize one angle of something. And, you know, when we're seeing it from from this point of view, while at the same time looking at something from that exact same perspective when we're on the other side. And and just curious if that if that rang a bell with you, too. Um, sure. Well, you know, I guess I'll just say, I mean, India, I mean, what he's doing in, in this this uh, long exploration of Phantom India is is revealing both to his contemporary audience and to everybody who's had a chance to watch it since then is that it's much more than just a brand. It's just much, it's much more than just a state of mind. It's, it's this incredibly vast and ancient and complex society that is vaster and more ancient and more complex than maybe all of Europe or all of the United States or the, the Western world in its own way, because you have so many things that, you know, so many aspects of the society that are, incredibly ancient these these tribal cultures these religious rituals these these kind of traditions that have endured across millennia in some cases very much unchanged but also a lot of real modernism and a lot of uh, there's just there's just so much going on that you you can hardly digest it you you can't really comprehend or get your mind around it the way that you can maybe about you know american culture or french culture or euro culture you know india is is it's just kind of mind-blowing and so he's trying to capture all of that and so you you do have the the almost contradictory responses to the purity and the simplicity of of an impoverished way of life because in a way it's it's so unchangeable like you've got to salvage what you can and and find the nobility within it while at the same time lamenting the exploitation and the sustained ignorance and the you know continuous oppression of people on the you know lower end of the caste system so it it's it's beautiful and horrible all at once and a bunch of things in between those two extremes as well well and i i agree with you because even watching it and and i say this more because i've just read this kind of criticism of these kinds of um, films or artists who, you know, turn to pastoral settings as if that's the answer to all of modern time ills. But I'm very susceptible to that argument. I mean, I watched this and it is beautiful. It is touching to, to see um, a culture that's so deep and that, you know, they're doing things the way that they're, you know, they were done 500 years ago. And, and, and seeing that from an outside perspective, um, there is something kind of um, kind of capturing about that, even if you kind of look at it and go, yeah, this person making bricks this same way every single day, you know, and that that's been going on for generations is is pretty humiliating at the same time. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's very complex because uh, I can can bring this up while still recognizing I'm probably more on Mal's um, viewpoint on some of this stuff. Than, than maybe is healthy <laughs> from some perspectives, <laughs> um, but definitely um, loved loved how he was able to get at those complexities without reducing them to some pithy statement on this is my answer to to the world. I mean, he really is recognizing 
and 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 um, I would say um, showcasing and and just uh, allowing himself to be a little bit baffled and amazed by the richness, the diversity, the the, the contradictory images. I mean, you know, we, we, we looked at the, the stuff in that, when I just mentioned the crows, I think one of the reasons that that's such a long um, scene, a segment, it, or the, the, sorry, the buzzards, uh, a long segment, because this is a sacred being, you know, to the Hindu religion, this, this cow here, and there are cattle farmers and herders right next to all of this going on. And, you know, there's some contradictions there even. You'd think that they would do something to, to stop it. But, you know, apparently this is a cow that just died of old age, and they don't necessarily look at this as desecration. Um, but, you know. Buzzards got to eat, you know. Buzzards got to yeah. go on and do what they're doing. And, and But I like how at the end he pans up and, and shows this whole herd of cattle and the farmer, you know, the, the rancher just over there doing his thing, and that this is apparently a fairly regular occurrence. So something that we might startled by um you know there's just these these images that that he shows that are a little bit different from what we might expect and and he does allow them to remain complex i don't think he i don't think he ever purposefully just uh takes something and says this is what this means and you know that's that's admirable you'd be tempted to do that i think in most cases uh, when you're making something like this, but he keeps it, he keeps it very much an exploration rather than a, um, a kind of a, con- re- a conclusion with a lot of his stuff. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think that uh, this is as good a time as any to throw out my overall thesis or reaction to this. And I mentioned earlier that. I said that this pales in comparison for me to humane, trop, humane, and a lot of what you two are saying gets at that. And really what it comes down to me is this would have been a hell of a lot better film if Louis Maul would have just shut up. And <laughs> okay, I, uh, I, really, I really did not care for his uh, narration, for his uh, suppositions, for his uh, statements. You know, I'm, I'm already a Westerner watching this, and it was not helpful to me in, in many ways to get reactions from another Westerner, even one that's, you know, 50 years prior to me watching it. Um. You know, when I, I, I feel like it was, you know, I think Maul came at this very genuinely, but I also think that it's, um, you know, just part of what you need to do when you're, when you're putting something on television in a much more intimate way than on the big screen. Um, you yeah, know, I do I, think the format made a played a big role in the narration, but right. But because, uh, you know, I'm sure even if he hadn't come up with this, um, angle, you know, the producers, the television producers would have said, you know, you have to guide people through this. And I understand that, but it just, um, didn't work all that well for me. And and when I was watching Calcutta, that first 20 minutes had me into a real false sense of security because, you know, the first 20 minutes of that has no narration and it does have a somewhat uh, more of a vibe like humane, trop humane. And uh, then he started talking, and I might 
you know, I was like, oh, that's too bad. Um, but I, I do think in Calcutta it was more um, – I felt like a lot of the things that were said were more descriptive as opposed to uh, a lot of the opinion or um, – um, you know, what's it all mean type uh, statements that were done in Phantom India. So, Keith, um, yeah. When did you first notice that it was uh, grating on you? Like what were, because I imagine, was it from the very beginning when he's kind of talking about, here, here, we walked in and there's some peasants and one of them ran away from us because they're afraid that the camera will steal their soul or something like that. Was it then or was it later on? When did you first start to see, to get kind of, uh, shut well, up? <laughs> you know, that, <clears throat> obviously that, that hit me right away with that. And to me, that sounded very um, similar to a lot of um, uh, documentary uh, narration that you, we've all heard for years and years and years. Um, I can't pick out a, a specific moment, but somewhere right around in episode three, I think it was it was more of just an idea of I've had enough. And, you know, again, I'm going to compare it to Humane quite a bit. Um, you know, looking at looking at them, uh, the, the guys or the gentlemen making the bricks or looking at uh, the fascinating scene later on in the series when they're making um, some very uh, you know cheap rope out of coconut hair um, to me you know that was fascinating footage in the vein of trop or humane trop humane and I would have liked to have just um, uh, just kind of sat with that and you know w without narration because it was done so effectively in the later auto film. And here, you know, I, of course, I don't remember anything specifically that was said. It was just, you know, I'm, I'm generically going to describe it as um, a lot of this is what it means. Here's my reaction to it, this and that. And in some ways, that got in the way of my own reaction. And I'm not saying it would be a better film the way I like it, uh, but I, just the way I would have preferred it. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I understand um your perspective for sure. I'm trying to figure out what, what my own would be on that because there are some times when he, he does get in the way and, and it can almost be condescending if yes. not to us, um, but certainly to us, but also just to the subjects. Like I'm thinking of the dance scene where he's showing the students who are, you know, I think there's an American and a, a Japanese girl. They're trying to do Indian dances and he kind of jumps in there and Look at how terrible they are, how they just don't have the grace and flow of someone who has been doing this for their entire life. And I kind of thought, hmm, I, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where's this, where's well, this going? You know, show it, don't tell it, you know, allow right. us to sort of see that for ourselves. And maybe we draw that conclusion. Maybe we just recognize that these girls were not raised in this from – you know, uh, you know, from their toddlerhood, and, well, and, and it, so it's yeah. taking them a while. And but you know, they've got their own dedication, and maybe there's a future for them in this, or maybe there isn't. I don't know. It, it well, can that, feel, that particular statement can feel incredibly obvious because when I heard it, I thought, well, of course they're not as good yet, or you know, that's every culture. You know, if someone comes to my state or you know even my my community and tries to do something that we've just kind of been brought up doing 
you know, they might not get it <laughs> entirely. This is not unique to India. And, and those were parts that did annoy me because I just thought it seemed to be suggesting something mystical or, or special about India rather than this is, this is um, unique and, and different for many people. And here's some reasons why it, it, it seemed to go down the wrong train. But, um, but at the same time, I did, I did, um, you know, I didn't quite have the same negative reaction. But I'll, st- I'll step back here because I don't think I have anything um, direct to say on on this at this moment. Well, so. you segued, <laughs> well, you segued right into the kind of the the point or reaction that I'm trying to make is, you know, just a few minutes ago when we were talking, we watched Mall. I mean, we made fun of those hippies, and that's pretty much what Mall was doing himself. But then he really in many ways, did the same thing for six hours. Well, yeah, I think, you know, it, the realization comes that, you know, Mal is still speaking from a, a colonial mindset, maybe sure. not a straight-up colonialist, but a, at least a post-colonial where there's still that kind of uh, kind of in, ingrained sense that, you know, it's up to the Westerner to interpret India for the sake of other Westerners, you know. And, and he, you know, he, he does come to these moments where he's recognizing I've just – I've got to abandon my my filters and just be with these people as they are being part of nature. But, you know, you still have to, you know, translate everything that you're seeing and experiencing through the grid of your language, through your kind of unconscious biases. And, And so in making a TV series out of, you know, these hours of what might otherwise just be direct cinema, he he has to narrate. He has to sort of share his impressions, and that's probably what viewers expected. I mean, as as we mentioned last week, he he started his uh, filmmaking career working with Jacques Cousteau, who went underwater and interpreted for audiences the, what these fish and coral reefs and you know sea mammals and and all these other creatures were doing, uh, you know, and and so that's kind of the convention of of. Western documentary narrative, and and then of course direct cinema comes along and says, you know what, we can just show the images with the uh, you know, with the native sound, with the ambient sound, and and allow that to speak for itself without a voiceover. And and Miles certainly learned from that in making Humane Trope Humane. Uh, there is even in the last installment of this Phantom India series, uh, the episode titled Bombay. Uh, some some auto manufacturing that goes on. It's like, oh sure, wow, sure. that's that's the the lead in right there, you know. <laughs> so we've got cars being made in India, cars being made in uh, France, and just another reminder that even back in the '60s, Motor City USA wasn't the only place yeah. <laughs> turning out automobiles. Um, so you know, so Mal's you know still sort of trapped within his own mindset, and and it's it's a convention of the times. So you sort of have to take it what it is. But but yeah, there were definitely some times when. Uh, especially with the English speaking uh, Indians that he was talking to, you know, they're talking and I'm understanding them. And then here comes his French dialogue with the subtitles. It's like, shut up. I want to hear what those guys have to say. Not what what you're telling me they're saying. (laughs) Well, it just kind of grates on me, you know, going back to this whole subject of of the narration from a Western standpoint. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, or I am saying that this probably got worse in the intervening 50 years since this was done. Um, but 
you know, to, 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 to sit there like the hippies or like Louis Maul or like many, many Westerners to, to sit there and attribute that they, that they had there, that there's a grace in poverty and there's a, 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 you know, there's an enlightenment in, in this type of life. I mean, grace, grace, especially seem to me really doesn't mean much unless it's a choice. And it, you know, well, they're, they're such wonderful people because of how they, how they deal with their poverty. Well, they don't have a choice. I mean, that's what they have to deal with it. You know, it sounds like us saying, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have to, I, I didn't have to have my nose stuck into an iPhone all day long. Well, that's because he didn't have one. You know, we would have, if it was around, I Absolutely, mean, it, it's just, yeah. it's the environment that you're in and how you, how you deal with that. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't attribute that to grace and enlightenment. I attribute that just to staying alive. Yeah, and and, and yeah. just sort of the limited options that are available to so many of these people. I mean, these these sadhus, these these you know older men who just kind of wander the streets and kind of have that glazed, crazy look in their eyes. Well, I mean, what is enlightenment in one society may be severe mental illness in another. Right. And I and I mean, I really don't want to say that in a patronizing or condescending way though I run the risk of doing so, and I, I guess I'd at least want to be aware of that, mm -hmm. that a society sort of sets the terms for what human beings can become. And so India has, in some ways, found a a means of providing some measure of dignity to older people who could no longer do the common labor tasks, the menial tasks, and you know in our in our society these are homeless schizophrenics who you know panhandlers and people who might cause problems and need to be dealt with in some kind of regulated way or or you know at least find a safe zone where they can live their lives and not get in the way of all of us urban shoppers and workers and people who just want to walk down the street without being accosted you know by by somebody kind of getting into our space mm -hmm. Well, in, and and then the, you just think about how you know how crowded India is, at least in its urban areas. And yeah, I mean, it is. It's just it's just kind of mind blowing. I mean, I, I had this sense of wondering how much has changed of what's what's happened in these intervening you know fifty years, uh, nearly since these these images were were uh, you know obtained. And and you know, of course, India you know, with its you know economic uh, ascendancy um, and just the globalization that's happened all across the board, you know, our societies are, are much more connected now. I mean, you know, back when this film was made, you really, you really couldn't go to China. You couldn't really go to the Soviet union. There was Japan and there were a few other interesting nations, but India was like this incredibly magnetic alternative to the kind of, you know, homogenized Western culture that, you know, people in Europe and North America, you know, wanted to sort of escape from, especially when you consider all the, you know, the political controversies, the the wars and the, you know, the, the just the intensity and the insanity that was happening in, in those, you know, westernized societies. India did seem like a sort of this timeless, magical alternative, at least on the surface, in the pop culture level, until you got into the depths of it. And that's what Miles kind of in the process of showing us uh, throughout these yeah, many hours of, of footage you put together. Well, they're taking our customer service calls, and I can tell you after watching this <laughs> that 
I'm going to be much less annoyed and more understanding um, uh, at the at the economics that are um, you know ne- necessitated in that. I wanted to kind of go back to your comment on grace, Keith, because that that struck a chord with me. Um, uh, as I was watching this, there there's a part early on where again I wish I would have record or written down some of these lines, but. Maul seems to suggest that a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of the issues that we struggle with in the West, um, including just plain old human issues of relations and and um, aspirations, don't seem to affect some of these um, these people as, as much as as it affects us. That there, you know, is some kind of um, special enlightenment in some of this, and I thought, well. You know, you knew Satyajit Ray. Did you not watch uh, at least Father Panchali? You know, the if you watch the first uh, twenty minutes of that movie, you've got the bickering among the neighbors. You've got the the woman whose husband is gone. Um, they're struggling. You've got the old woman who you know is is ancient and still having to kind of fight for her rice. Um, and and sit there uh, hunched over for mm-hmm. such a long time. You've got the daughter who who goes to that beautiful field and watches the train and just dreams of something else, you know. And these are it's so human, it's so universal um, that even though it's in this this locale and in this um, impoverished little area, um, dealing with this little family, it it's so relatable because it shows that yeah they they might have some different. Um, Situations and yeah, they definitely have different worldviews, and and it does affect how you experience what's going on around you. But there's all of these other things that I think Maul is kind of overlooking in in a lot of these um, documentaries, where he seems to take life as it is on a surface level, and he sees them engaged in their activities, you know, whether they're religious, um, and just kind of watches them do it. Without ever knowing, are there moments when they're doubting, when they're dissatisfied, when they think, this is stupid, why am I still doing this thing that we've been doing for generations? Um, I wish there was something different, I wish there was something else. I never got the sense that he did any of that in, in this documentary. He seemed, again, just to, he seemed focused on the images he was capturing and on his own response to those images and his own evaluation of how is this different from my experience and um, and then steps back even a little further and says, and uh, what can I possibly say about all this that would make any sense? It's all just I just decided to shut up and just and just watch it and you well, know, enjoy his, all this. Right. His His agenda here is to take in as much as he possibly can in a limited amount of time. And not, he doesn't settle into a village and get to know a family, you know. Right. So there, there's a pretty fundamental difference there. Uh, he's not trying to show us sort of the micro level, but really the macro level. And and in some ways, I think he is providing a pretty valuable service again to his contemporaries and saying, you know what, India isn't just you know Paisley and Guru and and feeling groovy. There's there's much more, <laughs> and and I'm sure most people understood that on some level. But he really does 
you know, maybe he doesn't dig deep, but he certainly casts a very wide net. And yeah. I think I think there's a lot of value in that because you do see the countryside, you do see the urban centers, you see the temples, you see the, you know, Italian communists and the Jews and the Christians and the the tribal peoples who are not at all what you think of when you think of India. You know, you think of, you know, the 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 exotic colors and the smells and the flavors and the music and the temples and the rituals and and the gods and you know the the statues and the elephants and and you you, you sort of have that kind of mixture of Rudyard Kipling and and uh, the East India Company and the mythology and the fantasy and 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 all of that but but then there's the dirt and the filth and the the shit and the grime and and the leprosy and the uh, you know and the squalor and the and the you know endless generations of of people uh, begging and and so you know that's that is a reality and and it it did get him in some hot water and it actually extended beyond Louis Mal I mean the BBC was forbidden from even filming in India for some period of time mm-hmm. because they showed it as well so so there was a political consequence to this and and that's kind of sad because the authorities in India you know should not have come down on the side of censorship and repression i mean there's no secret to this and and to say here's what's happening in our society for the rest of the world to see i mean maybe there's a bias to it i suppose you could have that argument but the film is what it is and he's not making this stuff up i don't think anything could be said to have been staged uh, you know, certainly I've not read any criticism that says, oh, he was, you know, paying these villagers to, you know, put on an act or anything like that. I think this is all pretty authentic stuff. And I, I trust that his motives were to be as much a fly on the wall observ- observer as, as he could be while understanding, yeah, there's a Western crew of Frenchmen with technology that these people maybe have never seen before mm-hmm. right, checking right. them yeah, out. He, so there's going to there's gonna be an effect when you have that. But he's still trying to, like I say, take it all in. Well, he none of this is that a, they may be performing for the cameras. You know, they're doing what they always do, but they know we're here. And he acknowledges right. that to his credit. Well, none of this is a is a secret, as you say, David. But if if Bollywood has taught us anything, is you don't put it on film, and I'm sure that was <laughs> maintain the illusion, right? Yes, the yes. fantasy. Well, and I, I appreciate what you have to say there, David, because even though I'm I'm kind of digging into some of these criticisms a little bit, ultimately I I still really loved all of this, and also and and so. You know, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm coming down hard on it. I'm just I'm exploring those because I, maybe in spite of a lot of that um, that's going on, I do think this is incredibly valuable. I mean, I've seen documentaries, but this was a real experience. And I guess maybe maybe that's some of the criticism from some of the people is it's like, well, now if you think this is a good experience of India, boy, you <laughs> you got some problems. And yeah, if I maybe went and lived there for a while. Um, it'd be completely different, but um, but I, I just I loved seeing the the differences, like you mentioned. I loved seeing um, 
the, some of the things that we just we really can't understand. Maybe like carting out that um, juggernaut for their religious ceremonies um, every <laughs> that year amazing, that just threatens yeah. to destroy the whole village <laughs> or That's kill right. people. Eat, eat that Rose Bowl parade. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I mean, that's fantastic. And 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 I think Maul does a good job of saying, I know where you're looking at this from. Isn't that weird? Isn't that uh, why on earth are they doing that? And he acknowledges that. While, and, and then I do appreciate some of his commentary because it makes me go, oh, yeah, I should just kind of take this in. Um, for a little bit, so so I, I really did. I, I I know I've been talking about other stuff, and I think it's valid. But I think at the end of the day, this does this does better than. Um, I, and I don't think anybody could ever go over there and make a documentary from any perspective with any, um, you know, whatever they filmed, whatever they whatever they captured, whatever commentary they put over on it. It would be severely criticized by many people, <laughs> you know, saying this is not true. There's just there's no way around that. And I think that Maul has done something quite amazing here in that um, he he allows us to to kind of enter into that complexity. Um, he he kind of shuts it off, or, or not shuts it off, but 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 um, kind of does a little dance around all of that uh, with his with his overt commentary on how how he is there and what his limitations are. I think he he captures that very early on and allows us to go, yeah, we're all kind of outsiders here. Um, let's just see what we see. Well, I mean, the whole thing is called Phantom India, right? I mean, the, the name even, I think there's a few ways that you can, yeah. you know, tackle the name of the series. But for me, one of them is the fact that, um, you know, Phantom, something that's that that's uh, you know something that's like fog. You can't grab onto it. It's you know it's it's sneaky. All of those kind of things where you can't you can't latch onto it in your head. I mean, can you even believe what you've just seen? Right, you know? right. And you know it's hard to attribute this to it because it kind of all happened at the same time, which is interesting to me um, because you know you can almost say, well, your you know your perception of India is. In talking to Westerners, your perception of India is Nehru jackets, is Ravi Shankar, is the Taj Mahal, it's it's the Beatles, um, all of that, and it's it's interesting to me that the uh, Indian government would get so upset about that because, you know, I'm sure that they loved that aspect of people thinking about India, but you know, this is completely valid to show the other to show some of the other sides. And especially with what Maul is saying, I don't think he ever said, I'm going to show you every aspect of Indian society. I mean, this is him basically stumbling around for five months and, and filming what he saw. And it's not really, it's not at all a tourist film. No. I mean, maybe the closest to it would be like, you know, Goa, uh, that Italian nudist, I suppose. Maybe there are some <laughs> yeah. people kind of, uh, I, could, I could go check out that scene maybe. But, you know, India doesn't, it, certainly from this from this film, if you watch all six hours or seven and a half, if you throw Calcutta in there, there's not really a whole lot that says, ah, come tour beautiful India. You know, like I say, there is no Taj Mahal here. There are no, there, there's some nice beaches, but even those seem very rustic and primitive and distant. You know, you don't land your plane, you know, maybe take an hour to, you know, hour and a half ride or, or even less to get to your resort. You hang out on the beach, you drink some drinks and you disco dance the night away uh there is none of that 
to be found in uh, in all of these hours of footage here. And so, if the Indian government was trying to you know promote tourism or or uh, just you know even even travel in the, in a more way that's a little bit more um, you know rigorous than just lounging on the beach in a comfy hotel. Uh, this, this, you know, like I, I used the word earlier, is a little bit intimidating. This doesn't make India look like a very welcoming, friendly place for foreigners to come and visit, uh, or or for business investment either. So I, I can sort of see the government saying, you know, this just does not put us in a very strategic, uh, positive light. But you know, there's the reality of life that <laughs> that I think they maybe could be more considered with, which is, you know, how are they? Um, caring for the welfare of their people and believe me you know being a governing figure in that society with all of its traditions and complexities and challenges wow i mean that that's just overwhelming i mean this this and i will say this even as a film watching experience this is probably one of the most exhausting <laughs> processes i've been through in terms of you know and it's not just the sheer length of of the filming either it's i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, hours of, of watching and taking in information that we had to go through, certainly more than usual in preparing for a podcast episode. Right. But it's also just the thinking about what the realities are like for the, all these different people and and just the enormous weight of it all, whether you're a, you know, a child born into a, an untouchable, you know, cast where – your destiny may be like I saw those little children, you know, with their palms outstretched as beggars, and that's like that's their vocation. That's like what their life is kind of being trained to be, or at least you get that impression. Uh, but then you think about the beauty. I mean, the, the, these these girls who whose destiny seems to be you're, you're going to be a, a a dancer, you know, and and you're going to do this rigorous, exact dance to minute specifications, and it's going to be an incredible, you know, uh, demonstration, a, a beautiful uh, presentation, but that's kind of it. <laughs> like, like, yeah. like, that's what yeah. you are, you know? And, um, you know, and, and I could just go on and on, but, 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 you know, just really grappling with the immensity of the, of the, of the lives and, and just how much human energy and, and, and it just, you know, it gets you thinking about your own life and the choices we've all made to get where we are and, and, to go where we might otherwise go, you know, and so, you know, uh, past, present, and future. Uh, I don't know. There's there is a kind of a philosophical state of mind that is summoned by just watching these movies and sort of putting yourselves in the in the shoes or, or in, this, in some cases the you know the bare feet of the people <laughs> who are who are on screen uh, going through what you see them going through. So, yeah, so are there any particular episodes that stood out or, or maybe favorite moments that haven't been mentioned yet just huh. to kind of get into some highlights or some, <laughs> you know, uh, recollections that uh, maybe stand out in our memories? I, I was actually going to suggest we end that way, um, too. You know, just like, hey, what as a, as a film that's just a, a, a whole bunch of experiences, which ones were kind of your favorites or stood out? Um, so I, I've... 
uh, we're on the same page, David. Um, and, and I've kind of mentioned a few of the ones that I really loved, but I do want to return to the dance, and you mentioned it as well, oh, just yeah. that intricate dance. I was mesmerized, and it, it took me back to watching an, you know, another problematic Criterion um, <laughs> film, uh, The River, Jean Renoir's The River, mm-hmm. um, which I love that film. Um, and I love the dance scene in that film. Um, and this, just to see these girls, uh, that, that precision that you mentioned and, and the music and, and it being a dance that I, I don't understand, but that is so compelling because they're, they, they are really reaching for something. You know, I love when they, what the, when they turn their head and kind of look, um, into the distance and just the, and the, the, the things they're doing with their feet and and you can tell they're exhausted at the end of it, but they're smiling, you know, they're proud. Um, and I was also reminded of blood wedding, the Carlos oh, yeah. film yeah. that oh, we sure. were, that there's yeah. the rigors of the practice of the repetition. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and the sweat, um, that they're going through just getting their technique down so that when it's time for performance, it looks flawless and effortless and just glides, yeah. but it was a grueling process to get them to that sort of exalted state. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. And uh, I just I, I loved it. I thought I thought that that was one moment where I was just fully. I didn't want it to end. I was glad that he just sat there for quite a while and let us take all of that in. Um, and I don't think he talks over it <laughs> at all, Keith. I think no, that's a moment where he, he shuts. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll put that as as a particular highlight um, in in a set that's just loaded with um, a set of images that's just loaded. Uh, you know, I, I, that to me was, was just a, a beautiful moment of connection to something that I, I'm not connected to, but just could kind of feel um, nevertheless, some connection to it. One that sticks out for me is the, the derailed train as they try to get it back on, tracks that are almost you know they're trying to get the train back on tracks that are basically disintegrating as they try to do that and and of course that really speaks to um you know the colonial aspect i mean uh, you know britain came in and and built all those train tracks and you know that's another area that we haven't talked much about is you know britain came in then they left and, and you know that's where a lot of these problems started it was just this vacuum that was left of um, the lack of supportive infrastructure and all of that. So I was really struck and touched by, um, you know, the effort that went into trying to fix something that wasn't ostensibly theirs in the first place, but which they have come to rely on. Um, and, you know, it's just crumbling in front of their eyes. I mean, that's, um, you know, it was pretty sad and, and pretty dramatic at the same time. Yeah, well, they're again, they're salvaging what they can from right. the situation in front of them. And I think uh, we haven't really spoken about Calcutta uh, as a film sort of independent from the series. But, you know, Calcutta itself um, as a city and as a film really kind of gets into this kind of post-colonial thing quite a bit as well. I mean, Calcutta really was nothing. What, a fishing village, I think they say in the beginning mm-hmm. um, as far as the original settlement. But the British built it up, made it this massive metropolis for uh, you know shipping importing and exporting a big trade center and of course once the british leave they leave behind this this massive city which you know is is almost still to this day synonymous with abject 
poverty, squalor, misery. And Mother Teresa did her mission there. And, uh, you know, there's a leper colony, which is featured pretty um, prominently, you know, towards the latter part of Calcutta. And and so you're right. That, that is this, – this is a society that's been fundamentally – transformed and, and in some cases you may say even disfigured though it's certainly much more complex it's not just all oh, those wicked evil british colonialists oh, course, coming in course, yeah. i mean they they created some advantages and some opportunities i mean india's uh, you know much of india's you know economic prosperity these days is based on the fact that english is an official language there and that a lot of educated people uh you know have pretty friendly interactions with the West. It's a, it's a West-friendly nation in many ways, although not, not in every way. And the, the, some of there's, sometimes there's tensions there because India isn't fully on board with the Western project the way that a good, solid ally should be. And so, again, all those tensions, all, those, you know, uh, all that friction is sort of still there, and, and I think Mao's just capturing it because, again, this... this, uh, this major world power seems in many respects you know i'll just say backwards and primitive and ignorant and throw all those nasty pejoratives out there but as a straight up suburban american i'll, I'll just be honest enough so that that was my reaction throughout oh, yeah. several of these films it's like you got to be fucking kidding me <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what in the world are these people doing or why can't they get over it why can't they see just how kind of messed up or you know, absurd or or you know, pointless. I mean, just get with the program. You know, and but at the same time, I mean, I'm talking about you know millions and and upwards of a billion people now. How do you turn that ship around? How do you say, you know what, folks, let's just reset this thing here and uh, and take a fresh approach? Uh, no, no, the, the 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 past you know has has weight and and momentum and and it's you know it's again way beyond any individual's power to say, yeah, here, here's the new, better way of doing things, the more efficient way. I mean, there are people doing that. There are people trying that, I'm sure, in India uh, that had been trying it for decades prior to the making of this film and have been carrying on that experiment ever since. But there are other people saying, well, this is my dharma. This is my destiny. This is who I am. And this is the tradition that we are maintaining that goes back to the dawn of human history, or at least some you know, approximation thereof. Uh, you know, the people who sit in the streets, the people who beg, the people who um, just tote water or, or weave baskets all day and are, in some level, very content with that. I don't know. It's just, you know, just like I say, kind of overwhelming. Well, well it's interesting. you do see a part. Oh, sorry, Keith. Go ahead. Well, it's interesting that we've talked now for an hour and, you know, speaking to some of what you're saying there, David, and other than a couple um, just – uh, on the fly mentions, we really haven't talked about uh, the caste system or religion and, and you know, the thousands of sects of religion that Hindi, Hindu, Hinduism uh, uh, contains. You know, it, the Tamil and Hindi divides. I mean, yeah. these major cultures, they're really kind of almost hostile to each other or at least don't want to be assimilated into one thing. Go but, ahead. Yeah, but going back to your point about you know how do we how do we change these things how do we how do we turn a battleship on a dime, you know it, it's often said in in more pithier circles that I tend to to travel in that you know without the Catholic Church's um, you know uh, 
anti-science uh, point of view back in the, the mid ages, middle ages. I mean, you know, it's often said that we would have had the car 500 years earlier than we do now. But so how does, how does, um, you know, how does all of that, um, you know, help and hinder, but how does, you know, all of that caste system and all of the religion and all of that, you know, is that preventing, you know, a lot of this from moving quicker or moving quicker, uh, that, the way we would like to see it. I mean, when you see oxen and cattle just kind of wandering on city streets and cars and buggies and, you know, uh, amputees just kind of all clustered together in this chaotic mess, it's like, you know, it's, it's just, it's just rambling and, and, and inefficient. And so, yeah, I don't know, you know, what, what is the path forward or does it just, unfold at its own pace and right and, and when you've got the brawls on and when you've got the caste system and even mother Teresa at the time you know really espousing the line that you know this is your lot in life I mean, just just uh, accept it you know how do you then how do you transform from that if if society as a whole basically says that's where you're supposed to be yeah right you know, if, the, if there's an authority out there saying just be passive just accept it just yeah. let it be right um, that's there's almost a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, um, not only enduring the suffering, but almost celebrating it or perpetuating it. And that gets kind of into some kind of crazy-making territory because now it starts to feel kind of sinister and diabolical and exploitative and and cruel because maybe life doesn't have to be such a grim horror show um, and again, I'm projecting myself into these people' experiences, but so I see the I. look of I see the look of pain. I see the I know the feeling of being hungry, um, the exhaustion of laying and sleeping on the sidewalk because you have nowhere else to go, of diseases that you know could be treated or prevented. Um, to what degree do you start to exert force and say, you know what, we are going to clean up this slum. We are going to really try to you know you know promote a more uh, holistic uh, quality of life i don't know i mean it's just you know it, it's, it's kind of baffling and, and frustrating because there's that, that part of me that's like i'm a fix-it guy i mean i'm a social yeah. worker professionally i i, I want to do things that help people get better and, and think more clearly and give up bad habits and get out of self-destructive mindsets and I see a lot of that on display in these films, yeah. even though they've been hallowed and venerated by sacred traditions. Um, you know, sometimes I say, yeah, well, those are your beliefs, but, you know, you're kind of wrong or you're kind of ignorant or you're kind of holding people back, including yourself and, and others who maybe don't deserve to be held back. Maybe they haven't had the choice to be held back uh, and they're young enough that maybe a better future uh, is is possible for them. So can we allow them to have that option to maybe achieve something different than what you thought was supposed to be their destiny. Um, you bring that's up where the, social reform kind of has to allow its own voice and influence to be felt. Go ahead, Trevor. You bring up um, a, a reminder of the, the Satyajit Ray film. I can't remember the title of the particular one where they're dealing with the, the basically poisoned water at the temple. 
Uh, the enemy and of the people. Enemy of the people. And just, you know, you've got one faction that says, look, this is sacred um, and the anti-science. You know, this is – we're all going to be fine. That's sacred water. And then you've got the businessmen who know better but who make their money off of that temple um, location and, and off of all of that. You know, you bring up some of those complexities and how do you get around them? Um, and the one and guy that says, you know up, what, this is contaminated. we got to fix this. Let's shut the yeah, temple down. You do have let's some send the pilgrims people. away, and let's purify the water, and then everybody can go back. But we got to fix the problem first, but people yeah. don't want to address that. People don't want it for various reasons, and and that aren't um, – it's not like one united force against you. It's everyone has their own reason um, for being against you and, and considering you that enemy. Um, and we didn't – we haven't brought up the, the interesting fix-it notion they had before, which was if, uh, if you'll be sterile. We'll give you a radio. Um, there's that in the film. So, you know, you did have people even back now then it's an saying Android this is tablet, going right. Yeah, this is going to get even worse, and potentially sterilization is 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 the option here to kind of prevent um, this just booming uh, growth. That, so, and I can't remember which episode that's in, but that's fairly early on in, in the set of episodes where they're talking about the overpopulation and how many, you know, the, the land mass of India is X percent, but they take up this much percent of the world's population. And that's going to just continue to grow over the next 50 years. And, you know, it's 50 years later now. I'd, I'd love to, I'm sure that those numbers are, are right there somewhere. Someone's reporting on them. Um, and, you know, the sad thing is this isn't just a problem with uh, Calcutta and with India. I mean, I, I lived in Brazil and the Amazon area for quite a while, and there's just uh, – it's just it's, – it's terrible. And, and you get into the slums of Rio and, you know, that kind of stuff down in South America. I mean, and, and then you do kind of start to go, well, okay, now what do we have here at home, you know, in, in, the, in the United States with these – and boy, it, it's overwhelming. I I don't even know where to begin, but um, but we do. Uh, you know, there's quite a few connections here with uh, with the Ray set and that film in particular, and just with um, their own attempts, even in the 1960s, to say we can't produce enough to feed these people, let alone make their lives any better. Um, maybe we should. Just maybe the reset button is to to knock it off, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. and they, I like how they talk about the handing out condoms, and you know, and, and a, a particularly uh, spry eleven year old got quite a handful or something like that, you know. <laughs> just uh, ever, you know, handing them out. They are there's there's an attempt there, but but we've seen that uh, you know in Africa and in India that those attempts really haven't had any significant effect on on a lot of the problems. Yeah. I mean, and there's always that kind of law of un unintended consequences. You know, you come in with a plan and, and a good moral objective and a real sincere desire to connect with people. And then something kind of screwy gets into the mix and now there's other problems, there's other issues and, and things to deal with. So, I mean, this is in some ways just the nature of life and existence. You know, there's no, perfect solution but you do the best you can and i guess maybe that's a a bit of a summary point here i mean yeah so so mal's uh film uh, this is this phantom india is said to be his most personal film or the 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 thing he did that he was the most enduringly proud of um and i can understand that i mean this is just a an absolute milestone of, mm -hmm. of documentary cinema 
And um, as a personal experience, you know, even though he went on to, you know, have pretty significant success and made a number of films uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s that, you know, are pretty remarkable in their own right, uh, there's nothing quite like what we get in these uh, three discs here in the Eclipse series. So, yeah, is this kind of, is this kind of wind down time, guys? You think uh, we've uh, you know said what we have to say about it? I think so. We could either you know an hour, a little over an hour is good. We can either go three days or an hour and a half. It, it, <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. But you know, I, I was thinking you know we could probably do a scene by scene commentary describing the things that happen in this film. But really, there's no substitute than no. just watching it for yourself yeah. and just letting those images mm-hmm. sweep mm-hmm. over you, whether it's. One a week or one a day or one day dedicated to just taking all this stuff in. Uh, I, I think this is a very worthy experience, one that I very enthusiastically recommend just because, you know, India is a big, big player in the totality of, of human civilization and, and humanity itself. And yet in the West, uh, in our own bubble, as, as massive and as intricate, it and as uh, fascinating as it is, you know, again, it's very easy to write off India's contributions uh, uh, as as sometimes nonsensical and befuddling as they are. I'm watching a scene in Calcutta right now where these people are throwing these beautifully p- painted ceramic statues into the river and just yeah. dumping them there. And it's like, again, what in the actual hell is supposed to happen with all of this stuff? You know, like, I mean, are they going to get a trawler to kind of scoop this stuff back out of there? Or does this stuff just stay in the river forever? And, and this it, it's all disintegrating and it'll all be there until next year's crew comes in and does the same thing all over again. I mean, it's just, what is this? What is this chaos? But, but it is, this is, this is humanity kind of erupting and speaking to us um, from an angle that, you know, until you see it, you hardly even know such a thing exists. So, uh, yeah, this is a this is a top ten endorsement for me uh, for for this particular set of films and for this set as a whole. Well, I you know I like I said earlier, I compared it less favorably to Humane Trope Humane. Uh, I still think that this is um, incredible filmmaking. You know, my my point of view on having Louis Maul just shut up is. You know, one that I still stick by. Yeah, but, it's but legit, even for sure. But even with you know what we did get, as opposed to what I wanted, it's still, um, you know, as you say, David, it's just it's 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 documentary filmmaking par excellence. And and uh, you know, I had this sitting on my shelf for a long time. I kicked myself for for waiting this long, but I've really enjoyed the the experience that we're having with it. And. Uh, you know, this whole set will definitely go into the um, somewhat smaller uh, rewatch pile of mine. Yeah, and maybe not all seven episodes or six or whatever. Yeah, uh, hours. Yeah, not, in a yeah, not in less yeah. than a week. That's for sure. No, no. <laughs> just just pop in every once in a while, and and uh, you know, there are a few. I think I think disc two is one of my favorites, or episode two with the dance with the big uh, big rolling barge there. I like the beginning of uh, episode four. That's kind of a quieter, more mystical, introspective uh, scenes on the beach where, again, Mal is not really saying a whole lot there. And, yeah, the, yeah, the first 20 minutes of Calcutta I really like uh, because it is a um, 
it, it, it feeds what I wanted, you know, no, no, no narration, just direct cinema. And, you know, I, that first 20 minutes really sticks out for me as well. All right. Any last comments or are we pretty much tapped out here? Yeah. I think you guys said a lot that I would have had to say. Um, this is definitely uh, a great experience. And, you know, we talk about the rewatchability of these and you're right. I think that sitting down and watching them all in a row might not happen for some time, if ever again for me, but just having this on, um, while I'm doing something else, uh, I think that can be great. I actually have been watching these, um, in the early mornings, um, over the last few weeks and, you know, I'm going to miss that. And I think that I could still put these on <laughs> while I'm doing something else and just catch the scenes, catch that dance again for sure, um, revisit some of these locations um, because they are beautiful um, to see and unique. Uh, the, the, the brick the brick making, um, the beaches, the, the big fields, the the um the foliage when you sometimes get that the temples and the the people out bathing in that water um you know i uh, maybe maybe you can even just put it on mute for a little while um and just enjoy the imagery that's that's on film the things that they captured while they were out wandering around um because it's it's pretty remarkable it's part of our world and not something that i see too often so I I put a, a high recommendation on this one as well. I I probably do stand with Keith in that Umain Tropomain is uh, is is pretty phenomenal for, uh, for reasons we talked about last week, and I might prefer it as a as a meaningful um, work of art documentary film that really pierced into some existential questions you know whereas mm-hmm. this one is is still existential in a way but more just uh here's here's life in this area um here's life in, in another part of the world and uh and all of its complexities and um you know loved it Lo- really enjoying this i'm excited for the next two films i haven't watched them yet um but let's let's uh let's see how mall does in other areas of the world i i can't wait I'd well, like I to point for, out. Yeah. I'd like to point out just as kind of a, a, a recap for me. Um, I've got this playing on two screens right now, and on on my left, I've got the beautiful dancing of episode two of Phantom India, and on my right, I've got the leper colony of uh, Calcutta. And you know, I think that really speaks to the whole experience here and the and the the breadth of what you see and the dichotomy of it. Um, I'm. I'm very glad that we're kind of ending as I look at this. Yeah, that, that's the spectrum. That's the spectrum of life that it covers. And uh, so it is. It's it's mind-expanding. I think it's uh, it's soul-enlarging. It's also disturbing and troubling and, and amazing. So I, thank you for listening in. Yeah, next week we will be uh, you know getting much closer to home. I think speaking at least for Trevor, Keith, and myself, you know, three white guys living in our own little – Outposts in suburbia. Uh, we're going to feel a lot closer to home. We're coming <laughs> we to Minnesota. Talk. Exactly right there, right there. <laughs> yep. uh, stones throw away uh, down on the farm there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we do invite you to listen to episode three, which we plan to record a week from today. Uh, we'll be wrapping up our coverage of the Louis Mile documentaries. So we look forward to uh, sharing our thoughts with you there, and of course, hearing your thoughts on these uh, incredible films. Uh, the Phantom India and Calcutta from the documentaries of Louis Mao. So thank you for listening in, everybody. 
you can find us on Twitter at Eclipse Viewer, and of course, I'm sure you can find us individually if you want to interact. So we look forward to hearing your thoughts uh, as you join us on this journey through the Eclipse series. Thank you, and goodbye.